attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. My brother had another quote. It was, this is the only retirement I've got. Don't mess it up. And he said, I finally, after two years, have been able to let that go. And that thought hadn't entered my mind till I read it in his journal. And I thought, this is the only retirement I've got. Maybe I shouldn't screw it up. But realizing that it's okay to allow these things to kind of percolate a little bit and then come to me. So what's exciting to me is that I've got an unlimited potential future. It's a little daunting to try to put boundaries to that, definition to that, but that's okay. Welcome back to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that join us from all across the internet, we have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect no matter what your context is. It's been a fun fall season so far, and I hope you've enjoyed our conversations that have ranged from mentorship to humor to grade school to mindsets. And I think you're going to love this one about retirement with Pete Smith. Pete is a recovering CEO and a recovering architect. He has a lot of insights about the meaning of work, the meaning of life, the meaning of relationships, and how to prepare for the end of your career. You may think that's far off, but get ready. This is a good conversation with Pete Smith about life after architecture. Welcome to Context and Clarity. This is where every week we bring in a special guest to have a conversation about the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. I'm glad you're here today. I'm joined as usual by Katie Kangas. Welcome, Katie. 
Good to be here. Katie and I, and actually our guests too, we've got quite a string. Well, Ryan ruined it last week. Let me just say that. Ryan McEnroe ruined it last week (laughs) for several weeks in a row. Katie and I and our guests, we kind of held it down here in the Midwest. And Ryan came in and messed that all up. But it's great to have guests from other parts of the world. It's great to have people in our audience from other parts of the world. We've also had a pretty focused season here. We're in our fall season. If you aren't aware of this, Context and Clarity, the original Context and Clarity, ran daily for three years. And we spun out Context and Clarity Live here, which has been our weekly interview show. And we ran that for about two years straight, taking breaks only at certain holidays. And this year, we decided to go to a more seasonal approach. So we're back for our fall season now. And we've had a great group of guests here really focusing on the practice of architecture, which ironically or not, today is the day that I teach two pro practice classes in the same day. And so we're here for I think what will be a very interesting conversation related to the practice of architecture here. And I think it's one, when Katie brought up this guest and the topic, I thought, you know, this is one that we really need to have because, first of all, we've never had a conversation like this, specifically on Context and Clarity Live. But I don't think this is a conversation, a topic that is talked about enough. So I'm I'm really looking forward to jumping in to this conversation today. Well, let me introduce our guest. We're going to jump into this, what I think will be a very interesting topic today. But our guest today is a recovering CEO, recovering architect, a recovering FAIA, and someone who knows what it's like to practice architecture and what life is like on the other side of architecture. Pete Smith, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thanks, Jeff and Katie. Appreciate it. It's great to have you here. And you know, I think life on the other side, right? That, it sounds a little bit ominous, I suppose. But I think that's an appropriate way to put it in a lot of ways, because I think there are an awful lot of architects. Before we went live, I think you made a really good point, especially small firm architects, probably, that don't even think about life on the other side. I mean, I've heard people talking about the fact that they just plan to practice until they die, essentially. Usually, there's a little bit more eloquent way of saying that. But what's it like? on the other side now that you are recovering? Well, it depends what day you're asking me that question. Fair enough. Generally, it's really, really good. And partly because we had done such a good job at our firm. I was part of a large firm called BWBR in St. Paul and Omaha and Madison. And we had been around for 100 years by the time I took down my shingle, I guess. And so the firm had a history of transitioning leadership. And so It wasn't like I could even practice until I dropped dead. It was known that I would move on at some point. So I had been thinking about that, conditioned to think about that for a long time. But it also aligned with my own personal philosophy, which is that the practice of architecture, it's about more than just the leaders at the firm, particularly if you're the founder of the firm, that one of the most important things you could design is a practice that transcends you. and As part of BWBR, we were part of the large firm roundtable through the AIA. And so we would meet with 50, 60 CEOs a couple times a year and talk about everything. But none of those folks or very few of those folks could envision themselves leaving their practices. A lot of them were in their late 60s, early 70s, had been CEO for 15 years or more, 
maybe 20 more. Many of them had founded their firms and they had no vision that they could ever leave their firm. And so it was just going to be taken out feet first at some point and that would be how they would retire. And I left two years ago now. I would imagine many of those folks are still there with that vision in mind that they couldn't see moving on. In the time that the large firm had been in existence, BWBR had had three different CEOs, now our fourth one, participating in that group where many of those firms, it's the same person for that whole period of time. So it's a challenge that I would put out there. One of my partners, a senior partner before, who was the president a couple before me, we were having an odd lunch and he asked what I thought his legacy would be. And he was going on about a couple of projects that he had done, some big, important projects. And and then he got off on how he had created a philosophy in our organization about how we manage projects and make money. So we were a reasonably profitable architectural firm. So he thought that would be his legacy. And I said, yeah, I, that's an important one, certainly. I said, but I think your real legacy is the people that you've mentored and that 20 years from now, those people will, many of them will be leading this firm or have retired and mentored other people who will be leading the firm. And that's your legacy. So I don't know how many of your listeners are small firm leaders or founders who have ever thought about that, but what if the most important thing you ever designed wasn't a building? What if it was a practice that went past your name? Something that you could turn over to somebody else at some point and they could grow it even beyond where you could imagine it, it could be. I mean, that's an amazing legacy. When I look at BWBR right now, they're about 35% larger than they were when I left two years ago. Their income is almost double what it was. And they're growing in our office in Omaha was relatively small. I think it's almost tripled in size since I left. It's just amazing to look at. And there's some personal pride in that. They're taking it on beyond where I could have imagined it, which is really fun to watch. I like that philosophy. You know, I've asked this question before in different workshops and things that we've done with Entre Architect. And to answer your question, probably almost everybody in this audience is a small firm founder, owner, you know, leader, something like that. There may be a few that aren't, but many of those that, are not in that position or here because they want to be in that position. Sure. They want to start their own thing or run their own thing, so to speak. So I, I love that idea of, you know, the legacy being larger than yourself, which I guess is probably somewhere in the definition of legacy. But why do you think, well, first of all, let me back that up half a step. This idea that you go to the large firm roundtable and Many of the CEOs that are there are the only ones that have ever represented their firms. They've been CEO for 15 years or a long time. Is it unique in your experience to architecture, this attitude of going out feet first of, hey, I'm going to take over, I'm going to be CEO, or I'm going to start this thing. And the only way I'm leaving is till death do us part in a different context. Is that unique to architecture or do you see that in other business types? Well, I don't know if it's unique to architecture because I'm not too familiar with other organizations, but I will say it is it is widely seen in architecture. I mean, it is all over the practice. And I think part of it is because architecture is more than just a profession. It's a vocation. It's a calling. 
people are sort of drawn to it for whatever reason it might be. And many folks really, architects in particular, define themselves as an architect. They don't say, like the folks that were CEOs, and if somebody came and asked them in the elevator at the hotel we were at, what do they do? They wouldn't say, I'm a CEO who happens to be the leader of an architectural firm. They'd say, I'm an architect. I mean, it's not what they do, it's who they are. And I think that speaks to a little bit of that going out feet first kind of thing, because Mm -hmm. if you are an architect, if you define yourself as an architect, you are always you. And so you'll always be an architect. And if you're always an architect, might as well be an architect at the firm I started. Right. And it's ingrained in us. It's such a demanding profession. And so it does start to shape us. How do you feel like you've attempted to have that transition? Do you have to hold something back in that definition of yourself or you give it all to architecture, but then what do you have left? Well, I shared with Katie a little bit about my background. When I was in design school at the University of Minnesota, I kind of sucked you know, I would get an A in a design and I'd be thrilled. I'd say, why? And they'd explain it. And I just didn't understand why they were saying. And then the next week I'd put something out and it'd be a C, why? And they would explain it and I didn't get it. And so I just sort of assumed I'd be an average to maybe below average architect for my career. And when I got out, I was in a practice in a firm that they were doling out the responsibilities and I was handed more work than I could get done in a 40 hour week. So I needed help. And so I was assigned a few folks to support me. And I found a couple of things. One, I did better work when I worked with other people because they knew what they were doing. And number two, I could actually be pretty effective in manning and organizing and planning and managing the work. And so In school, I was not trained anything about the practice of architecture. We had an architectural practice class, but it didn't touch on the business side of the practice at all. And I learned that I actually had some skills in that. So I never really got hung up on defining myself by my job. And ironically, you know, when I retired, I was president and CEO. So I had a pretty good title. You know, it's a pretty impressive title, but I never really defined myself by that title. And so for me to envision something else beyond that wasn't too difficult. And I can imagine for folks that have founded a firm, that would be really hard, like giving away their baby somehow. And I can appreciate how difficult that is. But, you know, I read Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, a couple of years ago and, and really took that to heart because it put down in writing something that we had been practicing at BWBR for a long time, kind of. I don't know if it was intentional, but it certainly was in our practice. And the infinite game is this concept between infinite and finite. So a finite game is a sporting event. So there's a winner and a loser. There's a way of keeping score. There's known rules. And his example is if you treated your marriage like a finite game where you had a winner and a loser and you were keeping score, you wouldn't be married very long. A marriage is an infinite game. And the purpose of the infinite game is to stay in the game and really pushed business leaders to think of it that way. And for the most part, our organization did that. There were always individuals who really looked at it for themselves and, you know, what does this decision mean for my pocketbook? But generally the practice really was an infinite mindset practice. And I think 
I would challenge firm founders to think about it that way because that gets them beyond their decisions about how much money is going to go in my pocket this year or is that project good for the firm in the long term? Do I go after that because of that or not? If you adopt this infinite mindset, you'll find yourself making decisions that are totally different than they would be otherwise. Different decisions about leadership, development of other people, leadership transition, even how your firm is structured. So if you've got some folks on the call that haven't yet moved into a firm leadership or they're thinking about starting their own practice, thinking about how you structure your firm so that it can be transitioned someday to others is really an important piece. And if your firm isn't set up that way, it's not too late. You can always adjust those things. We made a lot of adjustments in the 10 years I was CEO to improve not just leadership transition. We'd always done that really well. What we hadn't done as well is do it with equity in mind. And so we really changed how the board was structured. When I took over as president, there were no women on the board. Right now, the board is 50% women. We had 100 years of no women CEOs. Our CEO now is a woman. And so just a different mindset of equity And that really is about the infinite game, that mindset. Going back to what you were saying about being an architect, and I think we see this in not just in business context or in, you know, this profession, but I think at some point there's always the danger that there's going to be a problem when our identity is built around something. I heard Rachel Cruz say that there's always a problem when our identity is built around something that can be taken away from us. Now, you know, you think about being an architect. Yeah, technically being an architect could be taken away from you. That seems a little drastic. But anyway, the title could go away in some sense. So when you get to a point of retirement or whatever you're calling that, and you've built your identity around being an architect, what happens on the other side? I mean, when before we went live, you were talking about something that your brother shared with me, and that really resonated with me. But I know you know you can go through these transitions, and all of a sudden, that identity, whether it's architect or something else, is gone, and it can be a real struggle for people. Right. The quote I gave: My brother is about two years, maybe three years ahead of me on the retirement journey, and he's a pathological journalist. So he's journals his thoughts constantly. When I retired, he shared with me his journal. And one of the things he wrote down was he's observed that people who are very dissatisfied with retirement are actually very dissatisfied with the person who retired. And then he added, retirement strips off the veneer of work and some people have little else. And I was challenged by that because I've got a couple of pathologies that I've wrestled with my entire life as well. And They are the need to belong, the need to have a purpose, and the need to control things. And there's a couple of therapists I could connect you with that could explain the roots of all that. But the need to belong, for my entire life, everything I ever did, I tried to run. Because if you're running it, you belong to it. And so I belonged to BWBR for 35 years. I was president for the last 10 of it. And when I was getting ready for retirement, I didn't fully accept or understand how much that 
loss of belonging to that organization was going to impact me. It was stronger than I expected. On the purpose side, you know, particularly as president CEO, every day I had a recognizable purpose. You know, there was, you're overwhelmed with purpose as president, but that drove me and it drove me, the purpose drove me to get up, get going, to learn, to get better, to make the firm better, et cetera. And in some respects, now that I can do anything I want, I don't know what to do. So what's my purpose? And there's an interesting book called Replace Retirement. And it talks about finding that purpose in what's next. And then in control, certainly as CEO, I had a lot of control, but I have even more control now as a retired person. I can control my day and build new routines, et cetera. So for me, it's really about finding ways to find purpose and, you know, reason to kind of get up. And one of the things that I've accepted is that it's okay to let that purpose come to you. You know, as CEO, see a problem, solve a problem. And so you want to solve this right away. And it's like, okay, you don't need to do that right out of the gate. It's okay. One of the things my brother had put down was the four phases of retirement. I don't know if he stole this from somebody or he came up with it. I Googled it to see if I would have to give somebody else credit for it. And I found organizations that talk about the four pillars of retirement or the four steps of retirement. So I think it's something he might actually come up with. But the first step or first phase is permanent vacation. And he said that lasts for about 12 months where feeling like you're on vacation feels like it's permanent. You wake up on week three and you realize this wasn't a two-week vacation. I'm still on vacation. The second phase is boredom and depression, which is where I'm at right now in the second 12 months. And it's sort of that lack of purpose, lack of lack of belonging to something. The third phase is experimentation. And he didn't give a time frame, but I figure that's another 12 months. You know, year three will be about playing around with what's next. And then step four, phase four is reinvention. And then he added, which suggests he got this from someone, only 25% of people get there. And I don't know if that's 25% of people he knows that retired or if there's some statistics somewhere that's legitimate. But you know, thinking about retirement as the end of something is not the right way. I think it's more about, it's just the next chapter in a book that is the novel of your life. And it is not the last chapter. It's just the next chapter. And there may be many, many chapters. And I think specific to architects, you don't have to give up being an architect to move into this next chapter. I mean, there's lots of different ways to be an architect and using those skills and that passion in ways that are different than they've been for the earlier part of your career. So well, it strikes me too that the truth of all of that is not unique to retirement either. There are other changes and seasons in life that that would apply to as well. So you mentioned the idea of letting the purpose come to you. What's that exploration or what's that journey been like? Well, when I first retired or even before I retired, my thought was, well, I'll write. I've got some thoughts on firm leadership. I could put those down on paper and maybe, you know, write a book or start a blog. Maybe I'll do some consulting, you know, take the things that I know and that I was reasonably good at and apply those somewhere else. And 
well in the other ear remembering what people had told me about you know don't dive right into something you know give it some time and so i spent the first year just sort of giving it some time and letting that sort of simmer and then the second year which i'm in right now just wrapping up really kind of doing a little more introspection about how i'm reacting to retirement and allowing myself the patience which is not my gift to allow that next chapter reveal itself. And I'm not sure what that'll look like. You know, I'm filling my time with other things. I've started doing watercolors and sketching, things that I didn't do to get into the architecture school in the first place. Didn't know I had those skills, frankly, and they've just been nurtured in the last few years, a few years before I started retiring, but certainly since. And trying to be a little more intentional on how I'm using my time building in routines, you know, working out every morning, get up almost before I do anything else, put on the workout clothes so that if you're walking around in workout clothes, you might as well work out. And that's become a reason to kind of get going. So I still get up when the sun's down and get up and do some things. Your time is your capital. Well, I think in life, but in retirement, certainly. And so you just want to make sure you're spending it wisely. Again, on the purpose side, I'm kind of letting that come. And then for Liz, my wife and I, it's been a challenge these last couple of years, first with the pandemic and then with retirement. We're spending a little more time with each. She's not here right now, but normally she's sitting you know, right there. Normally I'm not. Normally I would have been at the office every day. And so it's been an adjustment. And I think like my brother said, you know, we're, retirement lifts the veneer of work. It also lifts the veneer of relationships. When you're working, when you're busy working, you come up with a shorthand that you communicate with your significant other with because you're just too busy to kind of get into the details of whatever it is. And so this shorthand kind of carries you and suddenly the shorthand's not necessary anymore. And suddenly we have time to actually communicate. And so that's been a transition that we're working our way through. And so, you know, as I look at how you prepare yourself for retirement. You know, I've been a planner my entire life. Everything I've ever done, I've really planned and mapped it out. And retirement was one of the things I didn't map out, which is ironic. I think if you're a firm leader right now, I would encourage you to prep three things. Prep your practice. So how you're structured and how you're working on retirement or uh, transition planning and how you're developing others to take over, but make your practice survivable in that regard prepping yourself, you know, kind of accepting the fact that you are not what you do and that you can redefine yourself and that you want to, you know, for the folks in the LFRT, those folks are in their 70s pushing 80. You know, at that point, they can hardly get up and get out of bed. I think you want to retire, move to that next chapter, maybe stop calling it retirement when you're young enough and healthy enough to enjoy it. You have the energy and the physical condition to do whatever that is. So prep your practice, prep yourself. And the third thing is prepping others, you know, planting seeds, developing leaders, communicating with your partners and communicating with your family, remembering that your family, in particular, your significant other is retiring with you. It's not a soul journey. It's they're going to be along for the ride and helping them be prepared for this is just as important. I know you mentioned your brother. You mentioned, uh, I'm going to call it a culture of retirement at your firm because you've built such a good system 
of transition there. Have you had other mentors that helped you prepare for this transition for yourself? No. So I think the prep yourself piece, that's something that I didn't do a very good job at. I mean, you know, you are not what you do. That part, I was perfectly comfortable with that. Redefining yourself, comfortable with that. Going back to the pathology about belonging, that part, I didn't really appreciate how much that was going to hit me. But no, I didn't really have anybody coaching me on that side, which is interesting because running the practice, I had personal coaches, I had casual coaches and mentors through my career, but we also had personal coaches that would help with leadership as the CEO. I had a lot of peer groups that were coaching. So we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time communicating, talking with others, working things out, et cetera, as part of my practice. Once you cross that line and you're no longer getting a paycheck, then what? You're going to need coaching and help there too. And so if I was to do it again, again, I'm only two years in, so it's not like I couldn't do this tomorrow, but I would probably seek out a little bit more guidance. There was a woman who was helping us mentor our board, and she handed me that book, Rethink Retirement, about a year before as we started making that public within the board that I was going to retire. That was two years prior, but she handed me the book about a year before I hung it up. And now that I'm saying it out loud, I probably should seek out either her or somebody like that to help with that because it's a transition. And for me, that's the one thing I didn't do as well as I think I could have done. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. Do you think it's any different? Because your experience, obviously, the large firm roundtable, that's, what is that, the 60 largest firms yeah. in the country. Do you think there's any difference between your experience? I mean, there are some obvious differences, but is your journey different than one of these small firm founders, owners, leaders? Can they take all of this away, or are there are some things that are unique to their context? Well, 
other than their own personal psychoses, you know, whatever issues they brought to the table, I think it's very relatable. What I found, I was not just part of the large firm roundtable, but part of the Council of Firms at AIA Minnesota, the local one, which is really a much more smaller firm entities. And I found everything that we were learning or talking or sharing at the large firm, I would bring to the smaller conversation. And every single thing I was talking about was relatable to those folks. And the issues they had, I would bring back to the large firm because BWBR had that issue. And if we had that issue, chances are HGA and other large firms had those things as well. And so I found that anything that we were talking about in one was relevant to the other. And so I would think that the stuff that I've wrestled with, both in terms of how we set up our practice, how you prep your practice for transition, would be very relatable to firms and smaller size firms. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of what you have said so far is really human condition things. Yes. Certainly the personal pieces of it. But I think this also reminds me Mike Michalowicz, I don't know if you know him. He's an author. He's got a lot of books. We've had Mike on at least twice, if not three times. One of his books is called Fix This Next. Mm -hmm. And he has sort of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs for businesses. And at one end or the other of the pyramid, or one, however you say that, is legacy. What do you want this you know, he's not talking specifically architecture firms, he's just talking businesses. What do you want this to be? And we have in context and clarity before asked the question, you know, when you went out on your own, right? When you started your own thing, I forget how it goes. Did you create a new job for yourself? Did you create a business or did you create a hobby? And I don't think we've set them in that order, but I think there's a lot, you know, when you start talking about the people broader than yourself, the legacy, and then what comes next. I think that's one of the big missing pieces in the small firm arena is, hey, you're a sole practitioner. What next? Is your secession plan just turning off the lights and right. closing the door on the last day? Or is it something else? And I think that's a real, I don't want to use the wrong word. I don't want to offend anybody, but I think that's a real gap in the thinking in the small firm arena, you know, what is it going to be 30 years from now, 10 years from now, whatever the timeline is? What's your advice to small firms? You know, you've mentioned legacy. Would you push them to hire or look at M&A or something as part of their secession plan? Well, yes, I would think about legacy and secession, whether it's M&A or not. That's a whole different wrinkle. Sure. But I do think I found extreme satisfaction in building something that went beyond the next building, the next project. And I'd been around long enough to see projects that I had done get torn down. And so you think, you know, most of us got into this profession when we were in kindergarten playing in the sandbox and building little, you know, houses in in the sand. I was always the one that could mold the sand with square corners. So building something that would last and buildings, they last forever. Look at the pyramids, but not the buildings we design today. They don't last forever. But a firm 
could last forever. So if you dig down to the, you know, peel the onion layers and think about why did you become an architect in the first place? If it was to build something that would last, then a, building a practice that transcends you is just that. And it takes time. You know, it's difficult to be the lead designer on an important project and run your practice at the same time. You've got to rely on other people to do aspects of your practice, which includes, you know, guiding a client and design to free up some of your brain power, some of your creativity for building that practice that is a legacy practice, an infinite practice. But it is really rewarding to do it that way. And I don't think it means, you know, you look around to the five or six or 26 people that are working with you and thinking, okay, who's the next CEO? And I've got to get them ready tomorrow. You know, it's a process, but you need to be intentional about it. It just doesn't happen. Not every firm founder has a daughter who happens to be just the right age, who also has the interest to be an architect, who also happens to be working at your firm, who also has the skills to take over the thing right at the moment you drop dead of a heart attack. You know, it, it takes a little more planning than that. I think there's another aspect to the four phases that you shared. You've had a long arc career, but some conversations that have been had in the last five to 10 years are other generations are approaching their careers differently. Yeah. And instead of having 30 to 40 year careers, they're looking at, well, maybe 10 is good enough. And so they have these midlife retirements yep. where they go and it, it almost sounds like that's what they're going through are these four phases before that rediscovery, that redefinement, and then they jump into that next career. Do you have some thoughts on how that kind of resonates if you've seen that with architects, younger architects you've worked with? I haven't seen it directly with architects that I've worked with. Most of the ones that I've worked with sort of have this vision of staying in it for longer. There's been a couple individuals who left the firm to go do some, you know, odd thing somewhere else related off on the fringes of the profession. So that's maybe the closest thing. But, you know, when you think about the idea that it's a chapter, it's the next chapter in your life, that relates to what you're saying, Katie, where you've got folks that are maybe their vision isn't to be CEO of a firm for into their 60 that they're going to move on in their mid-30s to something else. And that's just that next chapter, and that's okay. I think that does pose some challenges to the firm leaders who are trying to build that next generation if all of the people they've got lined up to be the next generation end up going to work for Spielberg and, you know, build models for movies or something, uh, you know, that becomes a challenge. But there's going to be somebody who's interested in that. But I think it might create a whole new kind of organizational structure where it isn't just about, you know, who's been at your practice for 20 years that could be the next you. It might be a whole different kind of thing. Maybe it's a council of leadership within your organization and the specific names of the individuals or even that it is the specific individuals might change, that it's a team kind of leadership model where you don't have to worry about who's the individual. It's more about creating a structure where teams of people can grow. And then if a couple people on the team decide to, you know, their chapter, their next chapter is going to take them out of that practice, that's okay because you created this model where it's not dependent upon one person. So I think there's a lot of new mindsets around that. And 
you know, there are literally thousands of books on retirement. And the few that I've actually put my finger on talk about that mindset about, you know, it's not retirement and then death. It's just the next phase. You know, there's a, I forget how it's worded, but you start with learning, then you earn, and then you serve. Well, that cycle of learning and earning and serving can repeat itself multiple times through your life. It isn't just, I learned in my 20s or my teens and 20s in college, and then I earned for my 30s and my 40s and 50s, and now I'm in my 60s and 70s, and I'm going to serve others. You know, that might be my journey, but for many, it might be that there's a learning, earning, serving cycle that occurs multiple times through your life. You know, very much that next step for me, whatever it is, if it ends up being, maybe I'll do coaching. Well, to do that, I need some training. So, you know, I'll be learning again and that's okay. In fact, that's exciting. I think that's really astute. You know, I feel this a lot because I'm up on campus with the graduate students or whatever. There's always a new generation, but it's changing a lot. I think it's changing more than I've seen in the couple of years that I've been around. So that idea of a changing business model, I think, is important. I often wonder, I've witnessed this in others that have gone maybe several years ahead of me. It's okay, this is the way I did it. This is my legacy. And I also wonder if people have trouble with the term legacy in some cases. But you know, this is my journey. This is the way I've done it. This is my legacy. And then I think many of us can look back and say, hey, why aren't they doing it the way that I did it? You know, that's a mindset, certainly. Right. Shouldn't they do it the way that I did it? And I firmly believe the answer is no, not necessarily. But, you know, we're going through, I think, one of the most tremendous seasons of change, especially generationally, than we've seen in a long time. I agree. And I think there's two separate primary topics here is what is it from an individual standpoint? You know, what is your goal, your purpose, et cetera? There's a concept, Ikigai, a Japanese concept about basically your reason for being. And it's a diagram interlacing series of circles and, you know, finding your purpose, et cetera. But, you know, what's your passion? What's your mission? What's your profession? How do you get paid for doing whatever it is you're doing unless you happen to be independently wealthy? But then there's, you know, the firm structure thing, which I think is due for a significant remodel, partly because architecture, the system is sort of broken. It's down to, you know, selling time instead of selling value. And so that's one aspect that needs to be restructured so that we're selling value. But it isn't just going to happen because it should happen because our clients have been conditioned. So you can't tell the client, well, actually, I'm worth more than that. So I'm going to charge you a little bit more. They say, great, I'm going to call the other person because they'll do it for less. And so the profession's sort of stuck. But I think the other aspect of the practice that needs to be redefined is just how the structure of the firm is set up to embrace this new mindset. You know, and five years ago, I was wrestling with being sort of burnt out. And I was in my review, the board reviews the CEO. And I said, you know, boy, I'd love to find a way to tell the folks in the Madison office that I'm in St. Paul, tell the folks in St. Paul that I'm in Omaha, tell the folks in Omaha that I'm in Madison. And meanwhile, I'm sitting on my pool deck in Scottsdale. 
And they said, well, why don't you do that? I said, no, I, I need to be seen and be around and talk to people. And they said, no, no, you, you could go do that. Just, you know, go down there for a month. You can work remote. And it's like, no, no, that doesn't work. That was fall of 19. You know, five months later, we're all working remotely. And now I believe BWBR has probably got at any given day, 40 to 60% of the staff is working from somewhere else, probably home, but not in the office. I mean, that radically has changed how we practice and collaborate and coordinate our work. So the profession, the people in the profession who are wrestling with, you know, what do I really want to do with my life or the next five years, this chapter, and then the practice in terms of its value, and then the practice in terms of how it's organized to take advantage of this new reality of hybrid work. I mean, it's just ripe for some major transformation, which is really kind of exciting to even think about. And you don't give yourself enough credit. I got to tour BWBR before the pandemic, and you guys were already doing free address. And it was modeled by leadership to have this freedom to work around the office, to work at a desk that's open with your team. And when you switch to a different project, you can move around the office and be with those other team members, but then having core hours. And I think it's a good reminder that there's some larger companies that seem to be pushing back and now wanting people in the office again, full-time. My husband's large company is, is starting to push back a lot to have things the way they used to be. And I love that you were more forward thinking than that to think about what people are bringing and that value. Yeah, thanks for that. I can't take personal credit for it, but I think that and the work we were doing around the issues of equity really set us up well for moving into the hybrid work reality. I know there's individuals that are pushing to get people to come back to the office and probably at BWBR as well, but I think that's a mistake to force that. I think you create an environment where they want to come back to do certain things, to collaborate in certain ways. You create an environment where that's that's something that's desirable. If it's a mandate, you've got to be in the office three days a week. And I think you're, particularly for a creative practice like architecture, I think you're creating a group of people who are not going to be doing their best work that way. I mean, obviously there's challenges in collaboration where you could sit down and sketch right next to each other. And it'd be difficult for the three of us to try and do that right now, but there's ways to work around that. That's a solvable problem straight out of the infinite game you know one of the most famous examples of because this is the way we've always done it is kodak yeah right we can push to run our businesses to run our firms the way we've always done it Uh, i don't remember the statistics right off the top of my head but kodak at its height was something like the second or fifth maybe largest company in the world they owned I think it was over 75% of their market share, which even BWBR does not. Yeah. They actually pioneered digital photography and they said, no, yeah, film is where it's at. Film is what we were built on. Film is what we've always done. And then it was 12 years later, they filed for bankruptcy yeah. because they were so attached to this is the way we've always done it. It's pretty amazing. Well, history is littered with firms that have been disrupted by some disruptive technology 
that came along and good was good enough. And then good got a little bit better and good enough got a little bit better and good enough got a little bit better. And eventually these folks were irrelevant. Right. Yeah. We're talking about something a little bit different here, but I think this idea of, you know, the evolution of the practice, I think is a really important one. Yeah. As you look, we didn't even talk about watercolors. <laughs> We're at the top of the hour. I <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned it. You mentioned that you had started doing this. But, you know, as you look at your phases that you're going through as defined by your brother, what are you most excited about on the horizon? For me personally, I'm excited about the possibilities, you know, that I'm blessed to be in good shape. In fact, I'm probably in the best shape I've been in in a long time. I'm blessed with some skills and I'm blessed with resources. You know, being president of BWBR, a reasonably profitable firm, allowed me to have some resources. And so I don't have to get a job tomorrow being a greeter at Walmart because I need to pay a bill. So that frees up a lot of opportunity for me. And so there's a lot of potential paths that I could take what's next for me. And I just need to take some of my own advice that I'm talking about and imagine it like I'm defining or designing a practice. You know, what do I want to get out of this? What if I decide to take my watercolors to the next level? I certainly don't see myself sitting in a booth at the local art fair. I'm more of an introvert than that. So what would I do with that? You know, and I certainly don't see selling them for 50 bucks. You know, what's the point of that? Well, maybe I can use those resources as an outreach to connect with other people or, you know, it's just the endless possibilities that are most exciting for me and not worry that, oh my God, my brother had another quote. It was, this is the only retirement I've got. Don't mess it up. And he said, I finally, after two years have been able to let that go. And that thought hadn't entered my mind till I read it in his journal. I thought, this is the only retirement I've got. Maybe I shouldn't screw it up. But realizing that it's okay to allow these things to kind of percolate a little bit and then come to me. So what's exciting to me is that I've got an unlimited potential future. It's a little daunting to probably put boundaries to that and definition to that, but that's okay. Yeah, but I think that also goes back to the idea of chapters Yeah, too, right? Yeah, there is this great big thing out there and we hope it's enormous, but we're just in this chapter. Right? We just have to get to someone that also needs to take their own advice. We just have to live this chapter until we get to the next. Great thought. You shared a lot of really great things here and advice and challenges. Pete, I really appreciate you coming and sharing this with us today. My pleasure. It's been very meaningful. This has been great. And I wish you all the very best. Thank you. In all the chapters. Well, and if anybody out there wants to chat a little bit more about anything I mentioned, connect with Katie. She's got a way to get a hold of me. So I do. I tried my old channels to get a hold of you and I had I had to figure it out. <laughs> you have always been very accessible for emerging professionals and you've been very engaged with us. It's been such a pleasure to know you both in your professional life and now in the after professional. I'm glad you shared this conversation with us and it's exciting to see where you're going. You can't call yourself emerging anymore, can you? <laughs> Technically, I'm still a young architect or as my daughter calls it, little architect. Well, little architect. <laughs> yeah. That's humbling. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
we should send that up the flagpole to AIA and see if we can get that passed. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Pete, again, thank you. Katie, as always, thank you for co-hosting this with me. For all of you out in the audience, whether you're live now or you're catching this on a replay somewhere, I hope you watch this, you listen to this, maybe you watch it and re-listen to it because there's a lot here that we can take not only for our careers while we're in the profession, but as we look towards the next chapter. So thank you to all of you for this conversation. Thanks for allowing us to spend this hour with you. And we'll be back again next week with our next episode of Context and Clarity Live. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use in your practice or even in your daily life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, I invite you to go over to the Entree Architect Network. It's a place where entrepreneur architects just like you gather to have conversations on these topics and support each other in their practices and in their lives. You can find the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, your ratings, and your shares help us and help other entrepreneur architects like you to gather together. And you can help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so 
overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> I did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.